Welcome to the pulpit ministry of Christ Community Church in South Florida, aiming to make, mature, and multiply disciples by preaching and teaching God's Word based on the sufficiency of Scripture. And now, let's join Pastor Bernie Diaz for the message. Good morning, Christ Community Church family. Good morning to our friends and guests that are joining us all over the place. Your Bibles, again, should be open or on your screen to the book of 1 John, the second chapter. We're looking at verses 18 to 23. There's two men, Rhett and Link, used to be Campus Crusade ministers, ministers and missionaries, and they became famous recently on YouTube because they joined the chorus of former Christians, quote-unquote, who feel their need to share their faith deconstruction stories for everyone to hear. They are now proclaiming themselves to be agnostic, which literally means without knowledge, without knowledge of God. They're not sure God even exists now. And as part of their healing process, they're declaring to the world their reasons why they think Christianity is wrong. As a result, they're even surprised and hurt by Christians who will promptly say, well, you were never truly of us, as you just heard this text being read says clearly. They hear that, and then they come back with something like, well, if there ever was a Christian, I was, trying to make their case. And they describe their their Christian lives something like, quote, I prayed, I shared the gospel, I went to church, I read my Bible, I believe the Bible, but then I met some LGBTQ folks, and I studied evolution, and I discovered that the Bible could not possibly be true, and therefore Christianity is false, end quote. How is that even possible, for starters? Some of you can relate to this, perhaps. Most of us personally know of or know someone who knows someone who has rejected the Christian faith that they once held near and dear. It's heartbreaking, really. Some are prodigal sons or daughters, and some will come back and they'll turn to Christ, and some will not. In fact, the poster boy for this idea, of course, would be Judas, who is one of the original 12. How do you live and learn from Jesus 24-7 for three years? How do you hear and see what he said and did and then take off? In this case, betraying Christianity for Judas led to the tragedy of which he took his own personal life. He didn't pass the test of faith, did he? I personally like the phrase that a faith that can't be tested can't be trusted. Um, It's true. It's concise. It's to the point. I don't know about you, but I don't like being unsure of something that I'm supposed to believe in and that is valuable. If I can confirm it and have confidence in it, that's what I'm going to look to do, right? So true saving faith can be tested to be true. It really can. You would think the Apostle John would have had this in his mind as he was writing this first of the three letters he wrote to the early church that we have toward the back of our New Testaments. In fact, the background, the context of this, was false teaching was already running rampant in the early church and around the early church. Some people were doubting. They were even unsure of what they believed in, whether or not they were in the faith, as some were professing Christians, had already been apostatizing or turning away from the faith. They were rejecting it just a few short decades after the church began. So John's writing here 
with a message toward the end of this letter, chapter 5, verse 13, the whole summary theme of it, John says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know, that you may know you have eternal life. He wants you to be sure and confident of your faith. He wants to remove the doubt. And he's using literal tests of faith in this letter. We've already seen some in the first two chapters that are getting us there here. There were doctrines to believe about Christ. What is it we believe about Jesus? And then that would lead to behavior, right? There was obedience to God's word. We looked at that test, our love for the church, our love for God rather than for the world. And now here in this text, he kind of circles back to another doctrine. He does that a lot here. And this is the test of antichrists, which applies to the issue of apostasy or rejecting the faith altogether. So this passage begins in verse 18, really goes down all the way to verse 27. That's going to help you understand who and what an antichrist is, what they do, and what we are to do with them. And one big thing we're going to see is how this test of antichrist, again, and the faith, helps us answer this question of eternal security or assurance of salvation, having confidence in that. So we're going to break this passage down into two messages beginning today. This one really is about knowing the Antichrist and those like them. And the second one we get together next time will be about how to discern or how to see, recognize false teachers and apostates or Antichrists and how to combat that. But Let's look at their presence. We're going to look at their presence. We're going to look at our position and then their position. But let's look at their presence, which we've just heard and read in verses 18 and 19, where again the apostle writes, do not love the world and the things of the world. Well, that's verse 18. Let's go down to uh, in 1 John 2. Let's skip down to where it says in verse 18, children is the last hour, and as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. Verse 19, they went out from us, were not of us, or if they had been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. Wow. We're talking about the presence of antichrists among us. And it's a, it's a Greek compound word here, this last hour that we have here, the last would refer to the last times, last things, end times. You've heard that phrase before. An hour, ora, ora, we would say in Spanish and Latin, is hour, literally, but that could refer to a definite time or it could refer to a season. But it could be literal, it can be figurative. And just to give you a sense of the word and this idea, hour can refer to just a moment in time, like Jesus in Matthew 19, was telling the apostles they would know what to say at the time or the hour when they were persecuted. And an hour from John can refer to a literal hour or an age, a period of time, like Jesus spoke to the Samaritan woman at the well in John 4, when he was saying there is a time, an hour, where the new covenant worshipers would do so in spirit and truth, and they wouldn't have to go to a particular place, like a particular mountain, in which to worship. But the best parallel metaphor for this, really, would be last days, last days, last times, which occurs six times in the New Testament. In fact, in 2 Timothy 3, Paul talks about times of difficulty using this word, and the writer of Hebrews in the first chapter, listen to this, says, 
But in these last days, he, meaning God the Father, has spoken to us by his Son, referring to Jesus. Now, what do those scriptures have in common? Well, they're talking about the Christian age, the church age, which is the period of time we're in now between the first and the second comings of Jesus Christ. Jesus inaugurated that the first time he came about 2,000 years ago, right after he ascended to be with the Father. The church was given birth at Pentecost. You read about that in Acts chapter 2. And so we're now in that church age, what has also been called by Paul as the time of the Gentiles, right? And that actually kicked off the last hours, last days, the last hour of the last days, I think. And that's been growing in intensity ever since then. My take is the last hour of the last day is going to come when Jesus returns. Now, we don't know, no one knows when that is going to come. Paul talked about that in 2 Thessalonians. In fact, Jesus himself and his humanity, foregoing some of the privileges he had of his deity, he told the disciples in his second uh, coming speech, as it were, the Olivet Discourse, he said in Matthew 25, 13, watch, therefore, be ready, watch, therefore, for you neither know the day nor the hour, right? The Lord didn't know at that time the day or the hour himself. So there were ungodly false teachers in Jesus's day and during the following centuries that have increased both in number and in influence. And so therefore, the last hour or the last day is really talking about a kind of a time not a length of time. In fact, 1 Timothy chapter 4, in verse 1, puts that time this way. Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. That's the time we're talking about. And the fact that many antichrists had already come to the church in the first century this has a near and a far aspect to it, all right? And the fact that there were so many antichrists in the time of John shows the proof that there's going to be a greater final antichrist to come. That's what I'm calling the last hour of the last days. And through the centuries, I know some of you have studied this, we've had many different antichrists, and they've denied the deity, right, of Jesus, that he's God incarnate, They've denied, denied the Trinity. You have the popes that have divided the church for centuries, and they've took on to themselves even Christ's authority. By the way, the big reason why the Reformers thought that the pope at their time in the 16th century was going to be the Antichrist, because his office, he referred to himself, the pope did, as the vicar of Christ. That means the substitute of Christ. The pope still goes by that position and title today. And of course, Jesus, we know, was our vicar, was our substitute on the cross in paying for the forgiveness of our sins, but they took it on a whole nother level. And so John says, look, you already know this. You've already been taught this. He says that in our text, and Paul had already written about him that way. But John is calling people like this antichristos, antichrists. Only John uses that term four times in this letter, including verse 22 here in this passage. An antichrist is an adversary, is an opponent, an enemy of Christ, or it could be meant to be used as a pseudo-Christ, a, a new kind of Christ. So think of it as people that, that choose to stand instead of Christ or stand against Christ. This is the kind of person that was prophesied way back by the 
by the prophet Daniel in the Old Testament, centuries before. Daniel wrote about him in Daniel 7.25, he shall speak words against the Most High. He shall wear out the saints of the Most High and shall think to change the times and the law, and they shall be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. And I believe that timing is the seven-year tribulation period, which is toward the end of the last hour, that we're going to be expecting. Daniel went on to say in the next chapter there of his prophecy, by his cunning, he shall make deceit prosper under his hand, and in his own mind he shall become great. Without warning, he shall destroy many. So the prophets in John are concerned about this, deceit, false teaching that comes from antichrists. And there are going to be many of those antichrists that come over time. We have some among us today. We're not always sure who they are. Some are self-proclaimed pastors or preachers. There was a religious leader, a, a guy leading a church in Hialeah, just south of where I'm at, and he believed he was the second coming of Christ. You have the cults, right? Remember the Jim Jones tragedy in Guyana, come drink the Kool-Aid. Remember that? David Koresh, the Branch Davidians. People thought he might have been the Antichrist. Uh, more respectfully, there are Christ-claiming false religions because of their view in Christ, like Charles Taze Russell, who, of course, began the Jehovah's Witness religion. Joseph Smith, that gave us the Latter-day Saints, Mormonism. Mary Baker Eddy, who gave us Christian science, which, as someone said, is neither Christian nor science. Others have pointed to tyrants and dictators, political leaders wanting world power over history. They wanted to dominate. You could think of Alexander the Great, Julius Caesar, Antiochus. Hitler was thought by some to be the Antichrist in the 20th century, like Mao from China or Lenin from Russia, more recently, bin Laden. The book of Revelation talks about a charismatic worldwide type of king, a ruler, a leader, who would likely begin a one-world government. You've heard about that. He would be talking and somehow bringing temporarily a period of worldwide peace. I think this might be the first three and a half years out of the seven of tribulation in the last hour. He'll even have a false prophet or religious leader with him. They're both serving Satan. But the Antichrist to come, his character, is described probably not only by John here, but, but most fully by the Apostle Paul in the second chapter of Thessalonians. Second Thessalonians chapter 3, I'll pick it up in the middle of verse 3 to verse 5, says that he would be known as the man of lawlessness, and he will be revealed, the son of destruction or perdition who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you and told you these things? So there you go again. Paul and John are giving us reminders, but we should already know. Again, we're not going to know the identity of who the final Antichrist is. I don't believe so. We don't want to spend too much time speculating on that, but we know there's going to be more before him that will come. Believe me about that. But there's a dramatic contrast here John's putting simply before us between a false and a true profession of faith, the difference between a true and a false believer. He's been arguing that in this letter, in this kind of language for a while. He's given us really contrast between darkness and light, truth and error, obedience, disobedience, love for the world, love for God. But here's the contrast here. 
The big difference between a Christian and an anti-Christian, get this right, is perseverance or endurance in the faith, to borrow the language of the great reformers. Antichrists don't stick around when the going gets tough. That's the big idea. John's actually saying antichrists and apostates, this is a real application for us. It says we're not of us. From the original language, it means literally they separated from something which they had been connected with before. And if they really had originated with them, if they had been of us, they would have remained. Or to use another word John likes, they would have abided. They would have stayed with us. But instead they left. Why did they do that? It says that they might become plain, or it might be revealed, or it might be shown, literally exposed, that they were never of them. In other words, I'll tell you this as an application. When the persecution of faith comes to you, as it did back then, don't be surprised if it comes to you again. If suffering, tests, trials, tribulation, they come to you, and they will, the final assurance of whether or not you are truly a Christian is going to be determined by whether you remain or stay in the faith, whether you are clinging to Christ, you are growing in spiritual strength, whether or whether you reject Christ, the faith, you step away, you leave the church when everything hits the fan. That's the big determining factor. But remember, as I've told you many times before, I mentioned this in the introduction, there are many ex-Christians. They say they're ex-Christians. That is a lie. That is false. It's not a thing, as I mentioned before. You can't be born again. You cannot be given new life and then spiritually die again. You can't say, I'm no longer a Christian. If you say that, you're trying to undo something that only God can do. In fact, if you want a text for that, turn in your Bibles or make a note about Ephesians chapter 2. What a great text. Ephesians chapter 2 in verses 4 and 5, where the Apostle Paul writes, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. God made you alive. He's the only one that can make you unalive, all right? God, by the Spirit in Christ, he resurrects the dead. You'll remember from all the Old Testament readings, Jeremiah and Ezekiel, those prophets, they tell us that that day you were saved, God just ripped that old heart of stone out of you and put in a heart of flesh. He gave, you, he gave you new life. Only God can undo that. And the word promises he never will do that to his children. Once you're adopted as a child, you're always a child. You'll remain a child if you're truly a child. So if you leave the faith and you remain that way as a rebel for the rest of your earthly life, all that would prove is that you were never in the faith to begin with. Once saved, always saved, if you're truly saved. How do you know that? Jesus said, except a man be born again, he cannot see or enter into the kingdom of God. John 3, right? Remember, I've given you three different ways how you can know if you've been with us any length of time in our church listening to us. We talked about this in Romans. There's three big ways you can know you're Christian. You're ready? Number one, faith. Number two, fruit. Number three, fortitude, which is a synonym for the word perseverance or endurance or patience. 
Faith meaning you know who you're believing in, what you're believing. In other words, that's Jesus, who he is and what he's done for you on the cross and his resurrection that you know he's your Lord and Master, Savior. Number two is the fruit that comes from that. You're living a Christ-like life. You're growing in grace, wisdom, sanctification. You can see it, feel it in your spirit. Others around you see it. And then thirdly comes the fortitude. And if you don't have that, then, as John Stott said, their departure was their unmasking. Because, again, look in the middle of verse 19, where it says, if they had been of us, they would have what? They would have continued. or They would have remained with us. But they went out so it would become plain or manifest, so people could see they were never of us. So the conclusion, the summary, this whole verse, I would paraphrase this way. True or real born-again Christians will be proven to be the real deal by their perseverance in the faith to the end of their earthly lives. Right? We've talked about the Christian life as a marathon, haven't we? Well, John is saying the real deal, the true believer, will run the race, will finish the race, and will win the race. Amen? I picture it this way. This five-year-old boy became angry once with his mother. He decided to run away from home and he walked out of his house with a little suitcase. Maybe some of you have done this before. He trudged around the block again and again. And finally, it was starting to get dark. And a policeman was called and saw him and stopped him and said, uh, what's, the, what's the idea? The little boy answered and said, I'm running away. The officer smiled as he said, look, I've, I've had my eye on you. All I do is see you going around and around the block. You call that running away? And the little kid then burst into tears. And he said, well, what do you want me to do? ain't allowed to cross the street. Child obviously respected his parents and knew they loved him, so he didn't really truly run away. Sometimes God's children become discouraged, ashamed of sin, struggling with it. We become rebellious. We may disobey the Lord and his word, and we may want to go our own way for a while. But if you truly belong to Christ, you are going to find that you are held by that power that's beyond yourself. Like the kid that couldn't carry out this desire to run away and just kept going around the block. That child knew, like we should know, that we cannot absolutely leave God if we are truly in Christ. So you have to think about this, because you may know people that have been baptized as believers, or they become a local church member. They go to church a lot. And they still, they still turn out to be an apostate or an antichrist. How is that? Why? Well, I would ask you. So that doesn't become you. Have you asked for the Lord to help you in prayer persevere in the faith? So you've been, so you've been seeing now. What you've seen is the presence of antichrist among us around the church. Now, what I want to show you by contrast real quickly is our position which is in verses 20 and 21. Follow me there. John continues, but you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. So this is our position. Most of us who are Christians, you don't think about being anointed by the Holy One. The Holy One is referring to Jesus. When you were saved and you became a child of God, John, wa John wants you to know this happened to you. All right, this is a marker. This is a proof, again, of your salvation. The elect, the chosen, are the anointed. They know the truth. Okay, the verse doesn't say that 
as a result of that, we have all knowledge, we know everything. No, it says that all of us who are true disciples, we have knowledge. Knowledge of what? Well, of understanding God, Christ, sin, the gospel. So if you're a Christian, and you're not an anti-Christian, you're not an apostate, you've been given a revelation of God that the average person does not possess. So what is this anointing John's talking about? Only John uses the word here twice in the passage. And when you talk about an anointing, it would be literally something you would smear on, something pour out like oil. This is symbolic language. And you'll remember the Levitical priests were anointed with oil in the Old Testament. So this is what's happening to believers symbolically. So this is not a second baptism of the Holy Spirit, by the way. Some teach that. I don't find that to be biblical. This is not an, an unction or a filling of the Spirit in which the Lord gives gifts to serve the church, spiritual gifts and ministry, and that's meant to unify the church. That's not what he's talking about. This is a universal anointing here. This is the indwelling all believers receive of the Holy Spirit at the time they're justified. They're made new. They're born again. They're saved. Why do I know that? John tells us right in the same letter. Flip over to chapter 4, and in verse 13, where John says, by this we know that we abide in him, and he in us, because he has given us of his spirit. That's the anointing that enables you to know the truth, as verse 27 says in the passage, but the anointing that you receive from him abides or stays in you, that you have no need that anyone should teach you, but as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is not a lie just as he taught you abide in him and we'll flesh that out but that means in greater depth next time but you have this anointing that enables you folks this you have this supernatural ability from god that leads you to be able to read hear understand and apply the bible we know that paul said in first corinthians 2 the natural man meaning the unredeemed person the unsaved person does not discern, does not understand the things of God. Why? Paul says, because they are spiritually discerned. That comes by the anointing. So there you go. I mean, aren't you amazed as I was years ago? Before I knew Christ, I would read the Gospel of John, John 3.16. Everyone knows that verse, right? I knew what the words meant. I could read. I could understand the basic idea, historically anyway. But it had no impact on me. It didn't matter to me until many years later, until God gave me a new heart and a new life. Why? Because I wasn't spiritually anointed by the Holy Spirit to understand. So this is who we are. This is our position in contrast to antichrists and apostates. Again, as our text says in verse 21, not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it. No lie is of the truth. So John, again, isn't writing anything new here. He's just reminding us what we already know. And know in this word is knowledge. It is discernment. It is that intuitive knowledge. Not knowing by experience that other Greek word, gnosko, that we talk about. This is edo, which is a word that describes knowing here. All right? This is why we call the Holy Spirit our teacher as well. He helps us to understand. So John, like Paul, just giving us basic Christianity here. And then one more thing I want to show you. We've looked at their presence. We've looked at our position. Let's look at their position. Their meaning antichrist, apostates, verses 22 and 23. John continues, who is the liar? 
but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ. This is the Antichrist. He who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Now, you guys might think I'm pretty direct, maybe, in my preaching. I'm just delivering John's mail to you from God. He's being really direct here. And he was known as the Apostle of Love, right? Well, he doesn't pull any punches here. Again, here's the condition upon which you know whether or not you have the spirit of or could be an antichrist. And he continues with it. In fact, chapter 4, verse 3, you can see he says, And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. That's why we sang that song this morning, Pastor George Ledison, the way, truth, the life, right? It's only Christ. He said, this is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the word already, those that don't confess Jesus Christ. In fact, if you flip over John's second letter, it only has one chapter. It's very brief. And in verse 7 of 1 John 2, that apostle writes again, for many deceivers have gone out into the world. Those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh, such a one is what? The deceiver and an antichrist. Hmm. So this applies to antichrist and the antichrist to come. To deny Jesus, what does that mean? It is to reject him literally from the Greek. It's to, it's to refuse something, refuse to accept something. No, 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 thank you. Don't want it. To refuse. Refusal to accept God's anointing of Jesus, his anointing, which means the chosen one, which is why we refer to him as Messiah. It's rejecting all of that, right? Now, we know that people do that. They struggle with his deity or his humanity. It's normally the, the former, his deity, that he's God in the flesh. Most deny that. The cults I've already mentioned. You would have Muslims, rabbinical or modern Judaism, atheists, agnostics, to name a few. Some of them might even believe that God does exist, but in their own concept of him and what that means, they can't believe he would come to earth and dwell among us, as John described. That's just too fantastic. It's too unbelievable for them to believe. And then you have the more subtle antichrists I've talked about. They claim Christ as their own, like the cults, or they engage in what we call salad bar Christianity, buffet Christianity, syncretism. I'll take a little from here, a little from here. I like this about Jesus. I don't like that. I put it all together. What does that mean? It's Christ plus or Christ minus something. A primary example of that would be in the midst of this pandemic we're dealing with Pope Francis from Rome. He's been reaching out to Mary for more help than usual with prayer, a prayer that he believes that she's listening to as he's in Italy. He was just interviewed there, and he was asked, how can people who do not have faith have hope in days like this? Pope Francis's answer was, they are all God's children and are looked upon by him. Even those who have not yet met God, those who do not have the gift of faith, can't find their way through this. In the good things they believe in, they can find strength and love for their children, for their family, for their brothers and sisters. One can say, I cannot pray because I do not believe. But at the same time, however, he can believe in the hope of the people around him and thus find hope, end quote. Folks, there's no gospel there. There's no gospel hope there. There's no mention of Jesus Christ there. Paul would call this another gospel altogether. 
And this past week, I should add, he offered indulgences, not the kind that Rome sold in the 16th century, but that saving and sanctifying grace could come to those who would tune in like this on the internet or on television, and they would have heard his special vigil or prayer to Mary last week. That was the deal or the condition to receive that. That's works righteousness. It's a false gospel because it's Christ plus something else. So what category of professing believer would you put that person in? And if that weren't all enough, John, as he did in his gospel, he makes this test a package deal. Even harder truth, that if you deny Christ, you deny and don't love God the Father. You see, you can't split them apart. The Bible is teaching that if you believe in one and love one, then you have to believe in and love the other, or you have neither of them. Look at verse 23 again in the text. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. It's pretty clear. There's no ambiguity there. You can't believe in someone who calls himself a father if you don't think they have a son, right? So when antichrists or people walk away from Christianity, there's some common denominators, right? Some might even come from just this unwillingness to hold to a high view of Scripture and its authority. I see that a lot, especially in our politically correct, secular world, leaning world, where the Bible is so unpopular, it's so thought of as being out of date, right? In some cases, it might be a moral issue, sexuality, of course, or a person's conflict with science. But in either case, it's a resistance of authority, authority to God. Another way, as we learned in our chapter's test here of worldliness here in this chapter, and it's also in 2 Corinthians and 2 Peter, is the greed and the lusting of false teachers. You got to look for that. The big two, money and sex. That'll play a factor. If you remember some of the scandals through the years of the antichrists or apostates, false religious leaders, you'll know that to be true. Some of you might be old enough to remember Jim Baker, the PTL scandal. And of course, in 2 Corinthians, I want to show you 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Paul was dealing with this Back then, in the middle of verse 14 of his letter, he says, some of these will disguise themselves as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. So the way they wind up, just like John's saying in this text, the way they wind up, perseverance or not, will determine whether or not they were in the faith or not. Then there's one last thing you don't hear too many apostates talk about, should get our attention. They don't talk about Jesus after a while. They don't say much about him, period. Right, I mentioned the Pope's comments. You don't hear too many people say Jesus was dishonorable. You don't hear too many people say Jesus was unfaithful or he was a fraud or he didn't exist historically. You don't hear too many people say like this, that Jesus wasn't good, or that he was unloving, or that he didn't exist, he wasn't influential, he wasn't popular, he wasn't hatred, he was all of those things. The truth is that people often don't turn away from the faith. They don't talk about Jesus much at all. They're really discredited, because history and the Gospels present him as a perfect God-man, and that's pretty hard to disprove. Now, they may talk about issues they have with the church. Yeah, they may squirm at the Bible's teaching, 
They may talk about their own personal journey, but Jesus, they're going to do one of two things. They're going to try to deny his true identity, particularly his deity. We mentioned that. Or secondly, they're going to treat him like they were, like he was standing before them as if they were Pontius Pilate. Remember that just Pilate just looked right at him and then right past him. Apathetic. Didn't care. Pilate washed his hands of Jesus. Remember in, in silence, and then he just said, I find no guilt in him. That's the same idea. And by the way, I don't say all this to be mean to people who've walked away. My heart breaks for them. Some are prodigals we love, and they will return in repentance to the gospel, Lord willing. Others may not. Being a Christian is just hard enough without having to apostatize and try to come back. Right? Just pretending to be a Christian also can be excruciatingly hard. Can't be done. But instead, what I'm doing here is just diagnosing a person's condition. So if someone is with us today looking in, and this sounds to them and their conscience like it's them, they need to return, return to the gospel, return to Christ. This is a warning for Christians as well. Consider Jesus, as Hebrews 3 says. So the three common denominators I'm finding in all of this and the denial of Christ here, the road to apostasy is really paved with personal sin, theological and doctrinal error, and then finally, probably the most prevalent of all, indifference to the glory of Christ. People that look at Jesus and they just say, I don't care. What has he done for me? They might say everything's true about Jesus. Others may say, I'm a pretty good law-abiding citizen, guy or gal. What does it really matter? I'll practice backpack Christianity. What does that mean? Backpack Christianity means this. When you need Jesus, you go to Jesus, and you put him on like the backpack. It's comfortable. It's casual. And when everything looks like it's going right in your world and in your life, you take him off. No more Jesus. That's a warning. So let me close by saying this. I'm going to go back to the beginning from this text. When someone walks away from the faith, from Jesus, he or she is simply saying, whether they like it or not, they never truly believed. So this message is a heads up. It's another wake-up call, which I think the Lord is doing with this pandemic big time. And if you have to talk to someone like this, believe me, I would do it hopefully with tears in my eyes. I would be gentle and I would be kind to them. In fact, there's a, there's a text, 2 Timothy chapter 2. I just want to read to you and we'll close there in reading it. It's so important in terms of the attitude that we should have with people that we're speaking to about this. 2 Timothy 2.24 says, And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, argumentative, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. And we'll stop right there for a moment. I just hope this message has been hopeful for you as you think about thinking through these issues yourself. Where are you? Have you passed the test of faith, the test of Antichrist? Are you in the faith? Or are you not in the faith right now? And if you're not in the faith, you have been rejecting Christ you once held dear, dear to, there is, there's time, there's opportunity to come back, confess, and repent. Just turn to God, away from that sin and selfishness that you've been living, and trust in Jesus alone. Believe in him by faith, 
that he alone, no other works, no Christ plus, no minus, just he alone paid the price on that cross that we're going to be talking about in a moment at the Lord's Supper. He alone did the work necessary. His righteousness becomes yours. God declares you not guilty in his court of law. That's what it means to be justified by faith alone. That's the greatest news in the history of the world. Don't you want that? Don't you want that for yourself? Christ Community Church is a God-glorifying, Christ-exalting, and Bible-centered body of believers who love God and love people by making disciples of Jesus Christ. For more information on us and to learn how to give towards our media ministry, please go to our website at www.christcomchurch.org. That's christcomchurch.org. And look for the Giving tab at the top of the homepage. 